Well, welcome here. Uh, glad you could join with us today. Uh, I am super excited about uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be walking through a brand new series we are beginning here at Central on the book of Acts. Uh, I have been looking forward to this one for, for quite some time, actually, to, to begin to dive into this just fascinating book. Right? This is often a, a book that gets brought up in church, and yet, I would say, sometimes is often rarely understood well right? If you've studied through the book, you'll know there's all kinds of questions around how exactly we should talk about this book. Does Acts tell us the church needs to be this communist society? Does Acts tell uh, the church that everyone needs to be speaking in tongues? Does Acts tell the church that we actually need less structure or or more structure? Is this supposed to be more organic or, or are we trying to establish things? How exactly should the church be run? Right? Acts has all these questions, but, but I'll be honest, that's not why I'm excited about this book. Right? It's not about all the controversies. It's not about even the really interesting stories that Acts has. The reason I'm really excited about this book is because Acts gives us this broad vision of what God is doing in the world and what he is doing in his church. It gives us this, this purpose that is far greater than ourselves. And I think that that is what's so captivating about this book. A few years ago, there was a a Broadway play that came out. It was just a little play called Hamilton. I would wager now, uh, most of you or many of you have probably heard of uh, of this play by now. In fact, it's now out so you can watch it online. But back when people went to plays, uh, tickets to go see a show of Hamilton went from something around a couple hundred dollars for the really cheap seats to up to nearly a thousand dollars just to go see one show and one ticket. In fact, there was a whole market for for secondhand uh, tickets to go see this play. Some reportedly, uh, two tickets went for $10,000 each. People are going crazy to go see this show. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the play, if you've seen it at all, you, you'll know why. It's well-written, right? It's well-performed. It's an interesting, sort of captivating story. But I think what has made this show so interesting, why it captures people's attention the way it does, is for something that happens right near the beginning of the play. In one of the songs, uh, the, the main character, Hamilton, declares, I am not throwing away my shot. Right? This theme runs all throughout the play, and you hear it again and again. He, he wants his life to mean something. At the end of the day, he, he wants his life to have stood for something, to have accomplished something, to leave a, an impact, a legacy on uh, the world. And I think that's what resonates with people almost more than anything else in that play. We shudder at the idea of living a life without making a mark. We want our life to count, to mean something at the end of the day. It's why so many people are saying they're, they're unfulfilled when they have a job where it's just nine to five, sitting in a cubicle, entering data all day, right? We want, we want purpose. We want meaning in our lives. And so we look for it in all kinds of different ways, right? We look at for our jobs. We, we want meaning in our jobs. We look for it in our relationships. We look for it in our, in our kids, in our hobbies, in our identities, even in social movements. We're looking to make a difference, to have a lasting impact on this world. And see, this is exactly why I think Acts is so much more captivating. 
It's because it speaks powerfully the entire book of the vision of what God is doing in this world, and it calls us to be a part of what He has done. Something that stretches the globe, that transforms lives, that has stood the test of time. In fact, that is even undaunted in front of violent persecution. The church is Jesus at work in this world, and we are called to be a part of what He is doing. Right? It's a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to see this message of Jesus spread to every people group on the planet. Right? It's a vision of a bigger work. Acts is about the church of Jesus that he sets on fire. And so we're going to spend our time here walking through this book, looking at, at what exactly is going on in this, uh, in this book and what Jesus is doing in his church. Right, so we're going to spend the next couple of months actually walking through just the first section of this book. We'll probably return to it you know, in the coming years. But today we're just going to start off with the prologue, just the very beginning of the book. And we want to see kind of the big sweeps of what is going on in this book. So if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to open to the very first chapter of Acts. Let's read the prologue together. It says this, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, this is the word of God. I'm sure many of you are aware, especially if you've come to this book before, but Acts is really the second book in a series, right? It is written uh, by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, right? So one of the the four Gospels, uh, the writer also then writes this book called Acts. Now, if you remember, Luke wasn't actually one of the disciples of Jesus. He didn't follow Jesus around during his earthly ministry. Instead, Luke actually was much more of a reporter. He went and looked and tried to figure out, got accounts of eyewitnesses and put them together. In fact, right at the beginning of the book of Luke, this is what he writes in that prologue. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right? Luke explains very carefully how he got this information. He went out, he interviewed people, eyewitnesses of Jesus, and he put them together. Well, that's exactly how he's writing the book of Acts. But if you know this book, you'll know that actually partway through the book of Acts, Luke actually shifts how he writes. He will say, you know, Peter did this, Paul did this, and then suddenly he switches to, we did this. See, we actually learn partway through, Luke enters the story himself. He becomes an eyewitness of the things that he is recording, right? You'll also notice that this uh, book is addressed to a man by the name of Theophilus, right? Both Luke and Acts are addressed to the same person, and the truth is we know very little about him. 
right? Outside of the fact that his name means he is a lover of God, we don't actually know anything more. But still, Luke has a very specific reason for the way he introduces his work. He wants to show that Jesus is still at work. Look back at verse 1 with me. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And here, you would almost expect that the end of that sentence would then be, and in this book, right? He starts off, in the first book, this is my purpose. You would expect that to end with, well, in this book, this is going to be my purpose. But he doesn't do that, does he? He kind of just continues on with what he's going to talk about. And I think that's actually for a reason. See, the reason is Luke doesn't have a different purpose in this book. It's not as if he told Luke and that was one story and then he's going to tell Acts and that's a completely different story. No, actually both of them are intended to work together, right? See, it's not really like the new Star Wars movies where each movie has its own kind of idea of what it's going to do. This was actually well written. Now, I, I can't tell if anyone just laughed at that joke, but I'm hoping at least one person did, all right? You know, sometimes we think of, of Luke and the Gospels as being a separate story from then what happens in Acts. And that's a totally different story. This is what Jesus did, and this is what the apostles did. Or this is what the church did, or even what the Holy Spirit did. But when Luke begins this book, that's not how he starts. In fact, he starts it in such a way to say that uh, the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do through his apostles in his church, by the Holy Spirit. It's not a different book. It's in the next step of what Jesus is doing on the earth. Jesus is still at work. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, this is exactly what you end up seeing. You see the name of Jesus spreading and going all throughout the world. You see Jesus at work here. Right? It begins right at the beginning of Acts with this tiny little group of believers. They're all huddled together. They're in one room. And then God sends the Holy Spirit. He lights his church on fire, kind of literally, if you know the story. Tongues of fire appear above their heads, and Peter gets up, and he begins to preach into the street. And on that day, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. And then it says, and more and more came each and every day. In just a few hours, they went from just over 100 people to thousands, this mega church that was meeting in the temple in Jerusalem. And they were continuing to grow and grow, but as they did, opposition came swiftly. Jerusalem was no longer a safe place for the church. Peter and John are arrested and threatened. Later, the apostles again are arrested, nearly put to death, and God uh, allows them to escape from prison. As the church continues to grow, so does opposition. But, but that shouldn't be surprising, should it? Because that's the exact same thing that happened to Jesus. As he continued to grow and teach in his ministry, so there was increasing opposition to what he was doing until finally Jesus was put to death. In fact, the church goes through the same thing. As they continue to grow and uh, have a bigger influence on the city, this fever pitch of opposition begins to, to develop until finally a man by the name of Stephen is grabbed. They bring him before a mockery of a trial, drag him outside the city, and stone him to death. All while this man, Saul, sits and presides over it, 
approving of what's happened. And actually, this man, Saul, gets a bit of a taste for blood. He suddenly goes on a war path, and it brings down a hammer of persecution on the city of Jerusalem, and the church ends up going, scattering all over the nation. They're spread all throughout Samaria, but actually, as they go, as the church is scattered, Jesus goes with them. One by one, they begin to share the news of what Jesus has done in these new towns and the salvation that is found in him. Churches begin to form in Samaria. An Ethiopian hears the gospel and brings that to his own country, but Jesus isn't done. He himself actually visits this man named Saul, stops him in his tracks, strikes him blind, and says, actually, I have a new purpose for you. You're not going to be persecuting the church. You're actually going to be building the church. Changes his name. You're no longer going to be called Saul, but Paul. And here's where a big shift begins to happen in the church. The message of Jesus had been shared in Jerusalem to the Jewish people. It had started to spread into Samaria, who who were uh, sort of half Jewish. Now Jesus comes and he meets with Peter. And he tells Peter, I want you to go and meet with this Gentile, this this non-Jewish person, and I want you to tell him about the Jewish Messiah. Peter is resistant. He doesn't think he should be going into that house. Jesus calls him, go eat with him, go into his house and share the good news. And as Peter does that, he sees something amazing. The Holy Spirit actually falls on every single person who believes. Peter returns back to Jerusalem and shares the good news of what God is doing, and they agree. They send Paul and Barnabas to go and continue the spread of Christianity, to share this message of Jesus throughout now the Roman world. They work their way up through Syria, over into Cyprus, into Turkey, and they go along the coast. For years they spend planting churches, developing uh, Christians, discipling them as they go until they finally come back to Jerusalem and they respond, or they, they uh, report back what they've all done. The church celebrates and says, go again. And so Paul continues this trip, but goes even further along the coast in Turkey, and then even crosses over into Greece. He spends years there planting churches, raising them up, developing them, and then finally comes back to Jerusalem. But just as every time the church begins to spread and grow in these places, so the opposition grows as well. Paul would be thrown out of cities. He would be whipped. He would be beaten. And when he finally returns to Jerusalem, he is arrested and put on trial. Paul must defend the message of Jesus in one court after another until finally he is sent all the way to go see Caesar himself and have his court decided there. In fact, if you go uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, verse 30, it says, Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul is preaching the gospel now in Rome. This message of Jesus has spread from this tiny group of believers in Jerusalem taken over then Samaria and it is spreading throughout the Roman Empire everywhere they go. And that's where the book of Acts ends. In fact, what we just read was the final line in the book. We don't find out what happens to Paul. We don't hear about the trial. We don't find out what he does afterwards. 
It's almost as if the book ends halfway through a thought, doesn't it? It's almost as if it ends halfway through a sentence, and again, I don't think that's an accident. See, Luke, just like the very first sentence of the book, he leaves it hanging for a reason. In verse 1, it's because he wants us to realize that what he is writing about is the continuation of the work of Jesus in the world. I think he leaves that last sentence hanging because he wants us to realize that the work of Jesus isn't done. That the work of Jesus hasn't finished with the end of the writing of the book of Acts. Jesus is still active in this world and he is still teaching us through his word. He still gives his Holy Spirit to empower the church to reach to the nations. This book doesn't conclude because Jesus hasn't finished. And see, that's where we come in. 2,000 years later, we are called to simply pick up what Jesus began and he is still doing today. The call of the church in Acts, spread the good news of Jesus to Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth is the call for us today. See, this isn't a history book that's disconnected from ourselves. This is what God is doing in the world. This is what our church is called to do. See, we are the ones who are carrying the torch right now. We are called to be this church on fire. So, So do you want your life to matter? Spend it on the kingdom of God and seeing the gospel of Jesus go forward because Jesus is not done here yet. This is the calling for us. So what does that calling actually look like? How do we approach that? How do we spend our lives for the kingdom? Again, I think Luke gives us the answer in his prologue. He calls us preach the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look back at verse two with me. Luke says, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he actually spends time with his disciples and he's gonna teach them and he's gonna tell them what they are to say. What exactly should they be saying as they go out and spread this message of Jesus? In fact, if you look just to the end of the book of Luke, it's a little too bad that Luke and Acts aren't side by side because they're so closely related. But if you go to Luke chapter 24, Right, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is what he says. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. See, this is exactly what Luke is talking about. Jesus taught them the gospel. Here's what you are to go out and preach. It is that Jesus has died for your sins and you can be forgiven. That for all of those who would repent of their sins, turn away from them, trust in Jesus, they are forgiven. See, this is still the message that we are called to bring forward. This is still what we are called to preach and proclaim and believe and hold. It's that I want to turn away from my sins and trust in Jesus because my sins are forgiven by him. He paid the penalty I could not. He died in my place that I might be saved. 
But what I find so interesting here is as, as Luke just kind of mentions what Jesus was teaching them, he focuses our attention elsewhere, right? He reminds them that Jesus rose, that he presented himself alive by many proofs, that he spent 40 days with them, he stayed with them, he ate with them, he was really genuinely alive, not just a figment of their imagination, right? Sometimes I think we almost miss this point when we just read the Gospels, because in the Gospels it seems like Jesus uh, rises and then he's gone quickly, but Luke actually tells us here in the book of Acts, Jesus spent 40 days, over a month he spent with his disciples, teaching them, instructing them, giving them Uh, the message that they are to take on. And I think Luke spends time there emphasizing that, particularly because the message of Jesus is not just his death, but also his resurrection. It's not just important that he died, even that he died for our sins, but that he rose again. We do not follow a dead Savior. This is not the book about dead Jesus. This is the book about the one who conquered death. If you want to understand, how could the early church stand up to the persecution that they had? How could they go to their very death while all the time proclaiming Jesus? It was because of this. They were trusting in the one who had conquered death itself. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See, when Paul tells the gospel, it's that Jesus died for your sins, but that he rose again. And in fact, if he did not rise, your faith is useless. It is worthless. And so when Jesus, or when when Luke writes about what Jesus did after his ascension, he reminds them of the resurrection. The gospel is no good unless you are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Not just that Jesus paid for our sins, but that he rose to new life and we will as well. See, the resurrection is the reminder that the payment of our sins was fully acceptable, that what Jesus said is true, that our hope is to be raised with him. We started by saying we wanna make a difference in our lives. See, in Jesus, we have the hope that our lives make a difference, not just now, but for all of eternity. You want your life to matter, spend it preaching the good news that Jesus died and rose again. This is the message that changes eternity. Now, I know in our our day and age that that almost sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? (laughs) That, That someone who died would actually rise again? Well, the truth is it sounded ridiculous back then as well. The Jewish community, the Gentiles, they weren't about to believe something insane like that. People don't rise from the dead. In fact, it would take a miracle to convince anyone otherwise. See, I think Jesus knew that was the case. And so he calls his church, depend on the Holy Spirit. Look back at our passage, verse 4. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus was not about to send them out by themselves. In fact, he was going to give them the Holy Spirit to help them and to help the message go forward. And so Jesus says, I want you to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this point has always kind of bugged me, or it's always kind of made me wonder, why exactly does Jesus say you have to wait for it? Surely Jesus is able to simply send the Holy Spirit right then and there. Why doesn't he do that? Right, from a pure sort of marketing perspective, you'd say, why are you waiting? You have some momentum, you better keep going. Right? This is not the time to sit back and wait. It's a horrible expansion strategy. But I think Luke begins to give us an answer here. Why doesn't Jesus just send the Holy Spirit right away? Well, I think it's because the church is going to be fully dependent on the Holy Spirit for its life and growth. See, I would imagine that in between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, I would imagine that the disciples have been talking to people. In fact, it would be hard not to, wouldn't it? If you've actually seen someone die and then come back to life, surely you're going to be talking about that. And yet when we meet the church in uh, just a few verses, there's only 120 of them. Out of all the people that had followed Jesus while he was on the earth, only 120. In fact, if you remember what Paul said, he said there were 500 people who saw Jesus after he rose, yet only 120 are there in the church. They were not exactly thriving at this point. That is until the coming of the Holy Spirit and then thousands of people come in. You see, I think Jesus waited to give them the Holy Spirit for that exact reason, because he needed to show them their own need, their inability to grow this thing on their own, so that they would never be tempted to think, this is what I have accomplished. No, they needed the help of the Holy Spirit if they were to be faithful to the call of Jesus. They couldn't do it on their own. See, Luke even points out that the baptism of John wasn't enough. It's not enough to go through the, the outward signs. Even repentance wasn't enough. They needed the inward transformation and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They needed the Holy Spirit to be faithful to Jesus, and so do we. Again, this is not just the history of some people that's completely unrelated to us. No, in fact, this is our history and we still need the work of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus says, go, preach this message that I died, I rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. No one believes that message unless the Holy Spirit is at work transforming hearts and lives. We can't accomplish what Jesus sends us to do on our own. We need him. He is necessary to our church. And so we're going to spend a lot of time actually in this series talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, our need of him. But let me just simply start off here. Let me just simply point out right at the beginning, our church is dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need his help. But here's the good news. We live 
after Acts chapter two. We live after Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit on anyone and everyone who would place their trust in him. And so what that means for us is that there is nothing holding us back from following after Jesus, from sharing the good news of his death and resurrection. There is nothing holding us back from having an impact with our lives for all of eternity. The question is, will you depend on the Holy Spirit? Will you allow him to transform your life? You might say, you know, okay, that's great, but how do I actually do that? What does that actually look like? Let me say it's actually probably easier than you might think. It's as simple as this. Start by praying, Lord, I can't do this alone. Give me your Holy Spirit that I might be faithful to you. And then get up and do it. Get up and speak about what Jesus has done. Share the good news and trust that the Holy Spirit will be with you and give you the strength you need. Pray, Lord, give me the courage. Give me the words to share the gospel at work. Then get up, go to work, and start a conversation with someone. Ask them about what they believe. And trust that the Holy Spirit will be with you in that moment. Trust and obey his word. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. See, when Paul went out to share the gospel, it took blood, sweat, and tears. It was a toil. It was a struggle. He had to work at it, but he knew that any effort he gave was actually the Holy Spirit at work in him. When Paul shared the gospel, he knew it wasn't his own power, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit in him. See, that is our calling. Share the good news of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Hear me. That doesn't mean it's always going to go well. <laughs> no, it didn't for the apostles, right? It didn't for Jesus. They were hated, jailed, killed. That's the history of the church. But Jesus even uses rejection to spread the gospel. We are called to pick up the torch from the early church to share the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, all relying on the Holy Spirit to help and work in us. You want your life to matter. You want to look back at the end of the day and say, I have accomplished something worth doing. I've made a difference. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes an impact for all eternity. Spend your life so that the nations might see his glory. Spend your life to see the church grow and flourish so that the good news of Jesus is spread in this city. Because Jesus is alive and he is still at work in this world. Jesus set the church on fire and we are called Pick up the torch and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you for the salvation that is bought for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we couldn't do enough, but Jesus came. 
And because he lived, he died, he paid for my sins, I can be forgiven. Father, thank you so much for that gift. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because I am not able in myself to to share this amazing news of Jesus without him. Father, I pray, would you empower our church to take up the call that we might share this good news, that we might spread your gospel to the very furthest nations here on earth, that you might be glorified in all of it. We ask for your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be upon us, to empower us, and to transform us more and more into your image. In your name we pray. Amen.